Whoo! That's, that's the first time I've ever seen that. So, <laughs> well, that's, that's pretty good. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Clayton. I'm the pastor here at this crazy church. And uh, um, today is going to be a good day. So I'm glad you guys are here with us. Brady did a fantastic job. I appreciate that. Uh, hey, if you'd like to follow along with the message today, there are QR codes on the screens all around. You can just take your phone out, scan it, and you can follow along with the message with some notes uh, for today. Um, but hey, let me, let me get started by asking this question. What is the greatest movie of all time? Anybody? Top Gun. Okay, that's kind of, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, True, true Grit, that's a pretty good one. Let me, let me just, I've got the microphone, so I'm going to give you the answer today, okay? It's The Burbs. Anybody ever seen The Burbs with Tom Hanks? Best movie ever. If you haven't seen it, you go watch it. I promise you, it'll rank up there, maybe, I don't know. It's our, it's our favorite movie, uh, The Burbs. Okay, let me ask this. What is the greatest song of all time? Okay, whoa, that's a little specific. Okay, um, anything else? Okay. Yeah, nailed it. I say, hey, Bohemian Rhapsody. That's the, that's the best song of all time, okay? It's not Amazing Grace. I mean, y'all, first service is like, Amazing Grace. I was like, you guys a bunch of Christians. It's not that. It's Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, that's just my personal opinion. Okay, who's the, who's the greatest athlete of all time? That's way old school, Noah. It's Bo Jackson, guys. Come on. Bo Jackson, you don't believe me? Man, just go watch some highlights. This dude was unbelievable playing multiple, multiple sports. He was a crazy uh, good athlete. So as Noah said, we're getting a sermon called the, the Best Sermon Ever. And let me ask this question. What would make a sermon the best sermon ever? Well, one, it's got to have some great reviews like this says here. Like, I've never heard anything like this before by Matthew, who was a ver verified listener, okay? Um, that's, that's, a good, that's a good screen grab right there. Um, what would make a sermon the best sermon ever? Short, okay, to the point, funny, like, you know, under 20 minutes or something like that. I don't know. Like, there's a lot of different things that a sermon could do to, to be the best sermon ever. But I would say this, that today the text we're going to get into is the best sermon ever. Not me, not what I'm about to preach to you guys today, but what Jesus had to say, because back in the Gospels, in fact, it's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. But he preaches this sermon that is unbelievable. It is fantastic. It is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is full of choices. Now, they're not choices that will get you into God's kingdom or get you into heaven. But they're choices that are supposed to be made by people who are already a part of God's kingdom. Like those that are saved, those that are disciples and followers of Jesus. The question is, how should you live? How should you act? And Jesus says, here's what you should do. In fact, Augustine says that it is, this sermon is the perfect standard of the Christian life. So we're going to go through all of it, okay? In six weeks, we're going to go through the entire Sermon on the Mount in six weeks. And we're going to start today in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 1. See, if your Bibles, you can follow along today. Here's what it says up on the screen. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when his disciples came to him, he, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on and says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all sorts of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who, who came before you. And then he goes on and says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And you are the light of the world. And a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's try to make sense of this. We're going to break it down verse by verse today. We're going to go really fast. We've got a lot of verses to go through. But let's go back to the very beginning. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse, verses 1 and 2. This is the setting for this story. So Jesus, he is, he's at the beginning of his ministry. He's traveling around. Uh, he's up around the Sea of Galilee. And people are hearing about his healings and they're hearing about his teachings. And so when he sees a crowd, it doesn't mean that he actually runs away from them. But he goes to a place where they could actually hear him. In fact, you can go today to Israel, to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, and you can go to the, the Mount of Beatitudes, where we believe that Jesus actually preached the sermon. And there's this crop of rocks at the top of this hill, and you can go and stand there, and the, the mountain, is, the hill is kind of shaped like an amphitheater. And people would get down below, and in fact, you can go and stand up there and have someone speak from up there, and everybody down low can actually hear from about 100 yards away just you speaking. It's a perfect setting for Jesus to be able to preach. So the Bible says he goes to this, this place and he sits down, which is pretty awesome. That's actually how a, a rabbi would go and sit, would go and sit when they were about to teach. And I wish they do that today. Like, I have to stand while you guys get to sit, okay? We should, we should try it the other way. I'm going to sit down. You guys stand up for the whole sermon, okay? That's how uh, Jesus got to do it. So he's sitting down. Everybody's around him. And there was two, inner, two circles. There's an inner circle of disciples who were with him. And then in the outer circle are the, the rest of the crowd, which is probably a mixture of people who, who had faith in Jesus that were already following him and those who were just curious, which is really awesome to know that Jesus didn't just preach to believers, which means that when we preach, when we stand up here, when we teach about God, we shouldn't just teach to Christians. It should be to everybody because that's what Jesus did. So Jesus, he preaches to everybody, and this is kind of the setting. And what he's going to do is he's going to going to teach at the very beginning some some beatitudes. Now, what in the world are beatitudes? Well, beatitudes are Latin. It's just a Latin phrase for blessed or happy. But I think it goes a little bit deeper than that. And Jesus is saying that these things you should delight in. And there's going to be a group of these spiritual equations, like we just we just read, where blessed are the blank, okay? And these things don't really make sense on the surface because a lot of times spiritual equations kind of are upside down because in the world, the world we live in, it doesn't make sense. Like to be poor doesn't really mean that you should be blessed or you mourn doesn't mean that that should be a good thing. But Jesus says, no, no, no. When that happens, you should 
be called blessed or see yourself as being blessed. And it doesn't really make sense. And that's why we're titling today's message an upside-down kingdom. Because this is what Jesus is saying. saying in God's kingdom, things are not as they seem here in our culture and here in our society. So here's a, a great illustration of, of how we're talking about today that in God's kingdom, things are, are flipped upside down. And he begins with these beatitudes, and it's really important because in essence, the beatitudes, here's what they're saying. Saying, this is what Jesus is like. Jesus is saying, here is what I'm like, and I want you to be just like me. I want you to model yourself after me. And when it comes to these beatitudes, Jesus he bats a thousand. He is perfect. He doesn't mess up any of these things. And he says, you know what? In your life, you should try to be like me. And from the very beginning, this is what Jesus says. Now, Jesus doesn't start off a sermon with like a funny joke or like an illustration or something. He just says, all right, here we go. And he begins and he says this. Look, let's look at the first beatitude here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, for me, when I was growing up, I looked at these Beatitudes, and I always saw them in this, this light. I don't know if I'm alone here. Maybe some of you guys are the same way. But I always looked at them as kind of like negative things that we're supposed to pursue in life because in some weird way, it would, God would like us more or count us blessed or reward us if, if we lived our lives in this state of, like, gloom and poverty and, you know, just living life, not how everybody else is, is pursuing life. And so when I saw this like poor in spirit, I'm thinking, what in the world does that mean? Well, for, for me, I thought it meant like, like, okay, you literally be poor in life. Like if you're financially poor, then God is going to somehow uh, bless you, okay? But here's, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about financial poverty. He's talking about spiritual poverty. And what Jesus is saying is saying that those who are spiritually bankrupt in life, what that means is that you, your entire life, everything you are is nothing without God, okay? You are spiritually bankrupt. You realize that all of your good will never outweigh all your bad. You know that without God in your life, that there's no hope for you. When you have that level of, of poverty in your spirit, then you will be blessed. And then he goes on and, and describes how you will be blessed. He says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And so what he's talking about is that the spiritually poor in this life will someday be spiritual billionaires in the kingdom of heaven, which is a pretty cool thing. Everything turned up on its head. So that's how he begins. He goes on in verse 4 and gives the next one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So again, I thought this meant like you got to be kind of like doom and gloom all the time and mourning like you're at a funeral and wear black. And, you know, if you, if you live that kind of, kind of life, then, man, then God is somehow going to, to bless you. But it's not talking about, about mourning at all. What he's talking about is, is having this attitude of repentance and sorrow over your sin. Those who, who mourn over their sin, where you're heartbroken and you're crushed in your spirit because of the sin that's in your life, and even more than that, in the price that had to be paid for your sin. When we recognize that, the price that Jesus paid on the cross for our sins, man, it should change how we view our sin. It should cause us to, to mourn when we are going through sin in our lives. It should make us take a, take a, a pause and when we have that pause in the middle of our sin, here's what's happening. Your heart is changing. Your heart is being transformed. 
And Jesus says when, you're, when your heart begins to change, when, you have, when you're mournful and sorrowful because of your sin, that he will swoop in and comfort you. He will comfort you when that is the attitude of your heart. And he goes on in the next verse and says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. A lot of us are like, we don't even know what the word meek means today. You know, like what in the world does that mean? Well, it's, well a lot of people think meekness means like to be weak. That to be, to be pushed around, that you live in this culture where you never stand up for anything and you just let everybody uh, get one over on you. But that's not what meekness is talking about. Jesus is not talking about being meek or, or weak, but he's talking about having this humility in your life. So what does it mean to have humility as a follower of Christ? Well, here's what it means. is that you go to God and you say, not my will, but yours. Not my will, God, but yours be done. So a great way to think of that is like if you were to take out the checkbook of your life and there's only one check in that book and you write it out to God and you leave it blank and you hand it to God and say, you fill it in. That's what it means to have this, this meekness, okay? To, to have this, this humility in your life where you say, God, whatever you want me to do, I will go wherever you want me to go. I will do whatever you want me to do. I will live my life for you. I will pour myself out because it's not about myself. It's not about having this pride where it's all about gaining and gaining and gaining where people can look at me in a certain light and try to put myself out there in front of other people in a certain way so that people will look up to me or think highly of me. No, it's about being meek and saying it's not about me. It's about you, God. Here is a blank check with my life. I know that's difficult. That's hard to do. And sometimes we have that blank check and sometimes we're like, God, can I have that check back? You know, like, uh, can I have that back? But but it's a daily saying, you know, God, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, whoever you want me to, to meet with and talk to, I will do that because my life is all about you. That's about having meekness. And then he goes on in verse 6 and says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And what this is talking about is having this, be consumed with this, this passion and, and desire for righteousness. What that means is having a passion and desire for Jesus. Having a passion and desire for Jesus where, where you're starving for him, where you're so thirsty for him that you feel like you're going to die. How many guys have had your kids been like, I'm, I'm starving, right? Like in the car, and you're like, you ate like 30 minutes ago. Like, you're not starving. We do that. Every kid does that, right? They're, they feel like they're starving. But... <clears throat> Have you really ever been starving? Have you ever had a time where you were so thirsty that you thought you were going to pass out and die? That's the illustration here where you were hungering and thirsting for something so bad that you feel like you're going to die. And Jesus is saying, when you hunger and thirst for me like that, then you'll be satisfied. You'll be satisfied. Look at the, look at the next one, verse 7. Verse 7 says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Now, the first four kind of are talking about your life and how you live your life in relationship with God. But then everything changes, and this, this next one turns around, and it's talking about your relationship with, with other people. So it's not talking about just you and God and living this, this quiet, ascetic life where it's all about, about you guys, but it's like, what, is it, what does it mean to live my life out in public with other people. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful because you'll receive that 
in return. What it's talking about is having action towards other people. What are your actions toward other people? How do you treat other people? And Jesus says, when you live out the first four things, here's what's going to happen. When you're, when you're spiritually bankrupt without God, it changes how you act, right? When, when you are grieving over your sin, it changes how you act. When you write God a, a blank check with your life, it changes how you act. When your desire is not for the things of this world, but your desire is honestly for Jesus in a relationship with him, it changes how you act. And then you can begin to live that out with other people. And how you treat other people will change. And you're going to show mercy to people because you have been shown what? Mercy. You've been shown mercy. One of the greatest truths of the Christian life is that you can never forgive someone more than you have been forgiven. Right? You can never do it. You can never outweigh the type of forgiveness that you have been given. And when we understand that, when we live out that kind of life, and understand that. That is the attitude of our hearts. It changes how we treat people. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying if you're going to be in God's kingdom, you got to treat people differently. Then he goes on in the next verse and says, Blessed are the, the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now this, is, this pure in heart is, a, is in direct contrast to what we do today. Like we have, we love the Instagram us, Okay. Or I can say the Instagram view. You. You, know you know what that is, right? Where you take 20 pictures of yourself to get that, just that right one. You're, so you're scrolling through your, your pictures and you find the one where you don't look goofy or weird. You know, it's like, what's going on? My eyes, my mouth, I can't smile. What's going on? And you find that perfect one, but the lighting is not that great. And so you go to the filters, right? And you change the filters to where it's like a perfect cool lighting. And then you can, you can take the blemishes um, out of your face. And, and, you know, you get it to where you exactly how you want people to see you. And then you put it out there. The reality is it's not the true you. And the Bible says that God isn't concerned with this outward appearance. God is concerned with your heart. He isn't concerned with the way you look. And that's honestly the way that we are concerned mostly about people. We, we are attracted to people based on what they look like. And God is concerned about your heart. Now, here's the deal. I don't want God to see my heart, <laughs> okay? Like, if God is attracted to my heart, I don't think he's going to be very attracted to it. Like, he, he, I, don't, I don't want him to know what's in my heart. And I bet every one of us is the same way. If we were honest about the junk that's in our hearts, we wouldn't want God to be close to us. We want to push ourselves away from God. God, I want a relationship with you, but, I, you know, I want to be kind of at arm's length because what's really going on inside of me is pretty disgusting. So how do you change your heart? How do you end up having a pure heart? And here's what the Bible says in James chapter 4. The Bible says, draw near to God. Here's how you do it. You draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. So it's talking about coming to God. Like you have to, you have to pursue him as well. But then it also says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, okay, and purify your hearts, which reminds me of what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 21, where he walks up into the temple. Y'all remember the story? He walks into the temple, and he sees the, the filth and the junk that's in the temple. And, you know, he starts turning over tables, gets his whip out, and starts whipping. I don't know where he got the whip, whatever. Okay, so, so he, uh, he's doing all these things. It's awesome. It's like, man, it's kind of Jesus I want to follow, right? He's just flipping stuff over. 
Well, that's a great illustration for our hearts. Because the Bible says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, you're the temple. Okay? And what's, what kind of junk is in that temple? You know? If we're honest ourselves and write down the things that are in our hearts that are not godly, that are not pointing people towards Jesus, the things that are hidden in our lives, man, we would say, man, this temple is pretty disgusting. And God says, purify your hearts. Cleanse that temple. Draw near to God and pursue him. That's what it means to have this pure heart. And he goes on and says this in verse, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Does it mean like you just break up fights all the time? I don't know. I mean, just is anybody, anybody was like that in school? It's like, let's not fight, guys. Let's be friends. You know, I don't know what it means to, to be a peacemaker. Uh, but I do know that Jesus, the Bible says in Isaiah that Jesus is the prince of peace. Okay? And we're called to be, to be like him and to follow in his footsteps. And I think there's two ways, honestly, that we can be, we can be peacemakers. Number one is we can show love towards others especially those of the faith. The Bible says that outsiders will know that you're really a disciple of Jesus, not by how you look or how many times you come to church or how much money you get to the church or your outward actions, but the Bible, the Bible says they will know that you are disciples of Jesus by how you treat each other, okay, within the church. So that's one way that you can be a peacemaker in your life. And here's the second way I think you can be a peacemaker, which I think is even better, is that you can share your faith. To be a peacemaker means to be evangelistic. Evangelism is the best way that we can show peace to people because here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that apart from God, when people are separated from God, they are enemies of God. And what better way to bring peace between that person and God than by sharing Jesus with them? That's what it means to be a peacemaker. And Jesus says, hey, you gotta tell people about me. Tell them what I can do. Tell them about the gift that I have, the salvation, to save them from their sins. Tell them about that, and that will bring peace. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. Here's what happens. Jesus ends with this, this beatitude, and, and then he kind of says, you know what? This is not going to be easy. Like, all of these things are great and awesome, but it's not going to be an easy life. It will be a blessed life. But it's not going to be an easy life because when you live those things out, these beatitudes, it's going to invite something in. And that invitation is to persecution. Look at this next section says. Blessed are those who are persecuted for a specific purpose, for righteousness sake, for doing those things I just talked about, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he flips it and looks at the people. He looks at us and says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, get this, on my account, right? Meaning, because of your faith, rejoice and be glad. That's weird. For your reward is great in heaven, and for so they persecuted the prophets um, who were before you. Now, you would like people in this world to, to appreciate all the good things we do, Right? And our great attitude and our humility and all those things that Christians are supposed to, have, to be, be like. And the way we serve other people. You would think that people would be actually be grateful. Come on, right? But you know, Jesus, he lived that life out. He lived that perfect beatitude life out. And they nailed him to a cross. They hated him for it. 
And Jesus says, here's the deal. When you live that life, you will be persecuted. But, but get, guess what? There's, it's going to be okay. Guess what? There is something, a good benefit to that. Now, let me ask this. What is persecution? We talk about it all the time, and I think it's different for America, uh, different for maybe even in, in Oklahoma compared to other states, and obviously around the world it's different. Persecution is, is varied throughout, but in essence, persecution is when people don't want what you're selling, you know? They don't want what you're selling. Have you ever had like those door-to-door salesmen come to your house? They're always trying to sell me a security system. I don't understand you know, why that is, and they, they're really good at it, and they're like, hey, how's it going? you have any kids? you actually like your family? You know, you want them to be safe and secure? Oh, you got dogs, you know, and how many windows do you have in your house? I'm like, I don't know. Who counts the windows, you know? And, and, man, your neighborhood's getting kind of bad or whatever, right? I don't know what they're saying. And they're trying to sell me a security system, and, and I'm, trying to be, I'm trying to be Christ-like, right? And I'm just like, oh, i got to get out of this, this situation. And, and uh, you know, I'm trying to be nice to them, but at the end, I feel like the easiest thing I can say is, I don't want what you're selling, <laughs> you know? I just don't want it. Like, I'm sorry, you're probably a nice guy, but I just don't want what you're selling. And honestly, that's what kind of what persecution is like, is that when you are trying to live out the Christian faith or even sharing your faith, and someone says, I don't want what you're selling, to the point where they're willing to persecute you for it. That's what it means to, to live in persecution. But the good thing is, is that when this happens, here's what Jesus says, when that happens, there is something to, to take hold of. One, you'll know that you're a Christian, okay? That's a good thing. When you're persecuting, you're like, all right, okay, it, this stinks, but, but I'm doing what God wants me to do. So, okay, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I feel like I'm a, I am a believer, okay? I feel like Jesus and I do have a relationship. Okay, it's good. He even says you're going to have a reward in heaven someday. So you're like, okay, there, there's, there's future rewards for this. I know it stinks right now, but there's a future reward. But he also says, hey, you get to be on this all-star, all-star team. Think about the people in the Old Testament, all these guys, great men and women of the faith, and how they are written in, in the Lamb's Book of Life, and the, the Christians in the New Testament, and people in your life right now. And you look at all these, these heroes, and Jesus says, when you're persecuted, you get to be on that same team, Okay. You might be on the bench or whatever, but you still be on the team. Okay, all right, so whatever. Uh, so you get to be on, on that team. And that's pretty awesome. That's something to take heart when, when you're going through persecution. So these beatitudes, we have these, all these beatitudes that Jesus says. But what's the point? The beatitudes are the what. But why do we live out these beatitudes? And I think the answer is, is because the beatitudes are not about you. And honestly, they're not really about your personal relationship with God. The Beatitudes are about other people. They're about other people. If you can write anything down, you can write this down. That living a Beatitude life makes the biggest splash. It's all about having a life of impact, a life of influence. And honestly, we all want to have a life of influence. And Jesus says, if you really want your life to count, Live this way. And here's what's going to happen when you live this way. You want to know why churches die? A lot of of reasons, I guess. You want to know why there's a lot of stagnant churches here in America? There's like that nasty pond no one wants to get into. There's no no flow. There's no movement. Like no one wants to, to be near that. You know why there's so much lifeless Christianity in this, in this culture? It's because of us. <laughs> it's because of us. John Stott, he was this 
this famous British um, theologian. He said this, the greatest hindrance to the advance of the gospel worldwide is not persecution. It's not difficult, difficulty in the Christian life. It's not the government. It's not society. He says, the greatest hindrance to the advancement of the gospel worldwide is the failure of the lives of God's people. You see, when we live a life of impact, here's what happens. We get, we get a chance to do something special. When we live out these beatitudes, and sometimes, they're, sometimes we, we get blessed by them in, in, here on this earth, and sometimes we won't get blessed until you know, one day in heaven. But Jesus says you're going to be blessed for those things. And here's the deal. It's not just about you. It's about other people. And when you live those things out, you get to have a chance to have a life of impact, a significance in God's kingdom. And he describes it in two ways. He goes on and says this. You're the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. What does that mean? Well, salt in the ancient world, like purified and, and preserved, we all understand like what, what salt can do. It gives, it gives flavor to things. And Jesus said, hey, I want you to be like that in this, in this earth. And I, think about this, like, pretend like your life is a, is a salt shaker. And you're, you're putting grains of salt throughout your life. You're putting grains of salt in, in, the, in, your, in your salt shaker. And so you're putting in things like, like humility and, and patience you're putting things like a strong relationship with God where you're giving him a blank check with your, with your life. You're loving people despite um, their failures and despite even, even hurting you. You're, you're putting in grains of, of peace. And you get a chance throughout your life to go around and, and pour out that salt in your life to where it impacts other people's lives. You are the salt of the earth. Here's a way you can think of it this way. Be salty. Be salty to a world that's in decay. Because our world is decaying, and Jesus says, be salty, guys. That's pretty cool. You should make a T-shirt like that, right, Noah? Central Baptist Church, be salty. I don't know, whatever, okay. Be salty. But there's a warning in the middle of that, that passage. There's a warning that if you, if, you do, if you don't do what Jesus calls you to do, you have a chance to lose your taste. Okay, and when salt loses its taste, who wants to eat that? No one. No one wants to eat salt that doesn't that taste salty anymore. And he's warning us that if we lose our integrity, when we're not living out the Christian life, then we can no longer be salty to the rest of the world. So he warns us about that. And then he goes on in verses 14 through 16, and he finishes up by saying, You are the light of the world, and describes it in a pretty awesome way. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And it says, turns to us, turns to them, turns to us, and says, in the same way, let your light, which is the light of Jesus flowing through you, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, your beatitudes, okay, and give glory, not to you, but give glory to God who is in heaven. Another way you can think of it is this way. To be bright. Christians are called to be bright to a world that's in darkness. We're called to be that way, to be a light to the world. Jesus says in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. And then he turns around here and says, and so are you. He's like, wait, wait, wait. I thought you were the light of the world. And Jesus says, yeah, I am, but I'm shining my light through you and through your life. And he describes it through the city on a hill. He describes it through a, 
a, a lamp or a candle flame in a, in a dark room. So think about this. A city set on a hill. What does a city on a hill get to do? Imagine street lights are, are going off and there's, there's uh, just a lot, of, a lot of activity going on. When someone is far off, how do they know how to get to the city? They can see it, right? So think about in your life the spiritual journey that people are on. Everybody's looking for their spiritual home, to have a life of influence, a life that matters. They don't want to waste their life. And people search and search and search, and Jesus says, be a light for them. Be like a lighthouse, like a beacon, so they know how to find me. And then he goes on and says, imagine you're in a dark room. There's absolutely no light in that room. When you light a candle, the room changes. There's nowhere where that light doesn't penetrate. And he's saying in our culture, we need to walk around with these, these flames that, that aren't hidden. We don't, you don't light your flame and, and hide it. That's not what we're called to do. We're supposed to have this light flowing and outward so people can see it. And when that happens, you get to have a life of impact. Things change. So my question to you is this. What's keeping you from shining brightly? What's keeping you from being the salt of the earth? I think our pride gets in the way a lot of times. I think our sin that so easily, the Bible says, entangles us, gets in a way. I think our, our fear of what other people think about us, honestly, is maybe the biggest one. Keeping us from living out that beatitude life. Keeping us from being the salt and light of the world because we just want people to like us. And so we love to hide things. We throw that salt shaker, right, behind the couch when people come over, you know? Right, we, we, we go and hide that flame because we don't want people for some weird reason, we don't want people to know that we are Christians. I, why? What are we scared of? We're scared of what other people think about us. You know, I think a, another big one is that keeps us from living the, the Christian life is we have this desire for comfort, probably above all else. I don't know, anybody in this room, do you like pursue discomfort? No one does that. In the cars we drive, the house we have, the vacations we go on, the job we have, the things that we do, the things we say yes to, the things we say no to, it's all about, honestly, about pursuing comfort in our life. And I think sometimes that pursuit of comfort goes above our pursuit of God. And when that happens, we're not living that life that God is calling us to live. There was a a missionary in the Middle East, this guy, he ended up dying when he was about 30, um, 34, I think. His name was Ian Keith Falconer. And here's what he said. He said, I have but one candle of life to burn. Okay, think about that. I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. This guy said, you know what? I'm willing to burn my candle till the end of my days, to not hide it, because it's all about Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about the comforts in this life. It's not about what the people think about me. It's all about him. This is the purpose of our lives, to be salt and light. 
What's great about the purpose of the Christian life is that it actually has power. Salt is powerful. Light is powerful. It changes things. And this is, honestly, guys, this is the upside-down kingdom. Jesus saying, the way you live will affect your influence. Be salt and light by following my example. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus and this perfect sermon that he gave. And we're just in this room here, and there's some people watching online right now, and we're imperfect people, and we're speaking imperfect words. But we're here for a perfect God who loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins, the sins that separate us. So God, I pray if there's anybody in this room who doesn't have a relationship with Christ, God, that you would pursue them. Holy Spirit, you would just wreck their hearts. God, you would change them. You would call them to repentance. They would turn from their sin and follow you. They'd be able to begin to live this life we've been talking about. And God, I pray for all of us who are believers in this room, who consider ourselves disciples of Jesus. The big question for us is, are we actually living that life out? Do we have this Americanized version of this life or are we following scripture? And Jesus, you're really clear about how we're supposed to live. Our relationship with you and our relationship with other people. And it's all for a purpose, God. God, I want my life to count. And I pray that everybody in this room and those watching, that they would say, you know what, I want my life to count as well. I want to be salt. I want to be salty, God. I want people to see a difference in my life. I want to be a light that shines so brightly that people can't help but ask, what is going on with him? And I pray the same thing for all of us in this room. God, convict us. We're messing up. We're falling short and change us, God. Not for us, but for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, they're just finishing up service in there, and I wanted to come out and tell you that we love you guys and we're praying for you. If you made a decision today, we would love to hear about it. So you can email us at prayer at cbcowasso.org and we'd love to respond to you, pray with you, and just be in that communication because you just made a decision. That's awesome. We want to celebrate that. Um, Remember as we go out into the world that we exist to live for Christ, love people, and make disciples. Have a good day.